Lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. We have got an amazing guest today. Paul Kevill is a social justice educator, activist, and writer, and he's been an innovative leader in violence protection for more than 45 years. He's an accomplished speaker on racism and diversity and the impact of class and power on daily life. Paul has developed highly effective interactive interactive methodologies for training youth and adults, and he gives people the understanding to become more involved in social justice work and the tools to become more effective allies in the community struggles that will end the oppression and injustice to transfer organizations and institutions. Paul wrote a book back in 1996, Uprooting Racism, How White People Can Work for Racial Justice. It actually won an award for one of the best books on human rights. He's written a lot of other books, but that's how I stumbled on Paul. I, I, by, I stumbled on that book. Paul, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to be with you and can carry on the conversation. So I'd like to just kind of back up. I was putting together a class on what I thought was this totally new concept, allyship, you know, to how to support black mental health. And so I'm doing some research and I run across the guidelines for being strong white allies. And that came from your 1996 book. And I was so impressed by it. You know, I reached out and I said, oh, my gosh, can I use your stuff? And, you know, you were so kind. I said, of course you can. And But the more I looked at your stuff, the more I realized you have been involved in this for such a long time. And what where you were probably 40 years ago is where many of us are today. So in, in some ways, things have changed. And in some ways, they haven't. What should we be paying attention to right now? I think there's certainly a lot to pay attention to. Um, we we need to start out with the context that we're in. Um, we're part, you know, we're in the middle of a global climate emergency. We're in the middle of a pandemic that is devastating our communities. We're in the middle of an election cycle, uh, very important elections coming up. And we're in the middle of a Black Lives Matter rebellion um, challenging the very roots of, of the injustices in our society. Um, all of those crises have to do with racism, whether it's the climate emergency and the impact on communities of color, um, the exploitation of the land, um, or the pandemic, which um, is impacting communities of color uh, much more severely than white communities because uh, largely because of racism in our medical system and healthcare system and, and also in our jobs and schools. Um, and the election is, you know, part of the election strategy of the current administration is to um, paint people of color as the enemy, whether it's Muslims or recent immigrants or black people, and not uh, talk about the political and economic elite in our country who's accumulating tremendous wealth every day as we speak during this pandemic by exploiting our communities. So 
this is what we're up against. Um, and, and I think that what's important to realize is that not only is there a tremendous uh, creative and inspiring black, um, indigenous and Latinx uh, leadership um, leading this struggle, but more and more of us who are white are realizing that racism is fundamental to our society and we need to be part of the solution because all of us are being affected by it. Well, you made several really good points. And the reason I wanted you to be on my show in July is because it's Minority Mental Health Awareness Month. And a study found that black and Hispanic youth were less able to get mental health services than white children and young adults. Study found that 7.3% of Asian Americans lacked health insurance compared to 6.3% of whites. The 2018 census data showed 16.1% of the Hispanic population lacks health insurance versus 6.3% of the non-Hispanic whites. So you made the point that getting access to mental health services is very, very different for that. Now I think it's called the BIPOC population, black, indigenous, people of color. Um, so I, th- I thank you for bringing that up. And you also talked about the election. And that's one thing that I'm paying very close attention to. The people I'm voting for, the local government officials, where do they fall on making mental health available for people of color? Well, I think you're, you're, you're right. Um, what, what we have to acknowledge is that um, not just people of color, but tremendous numbers of white people are also suffering and lacking health care and, and adequate housing and food and are being shut out of the, um, the, the benefits of our society. And communities of color are being hit much worse even than white, poor and working class white communities. So we all have a tremendous common interest in working together to create the change that will build the communities that we want to live in. Well, you know, one of the things that I never really resonated within me was the term white privilege, because when I hear the word privilege, I think, oh, that's the most luxurious setting. And I don't that's not the world I live in, but that's not really what it is at all. And, you know, one of the things that I've realized is white privilege has to do with the absence of a lot of things. I don't have to walk into a store all by myself and worry about whether somebody's going to be watching me. I don't have to worry about the neighborhood I move into. Will there be anybody the same color as me? So it's just understanding what we're, what structurally, how racism exists. And it's done that for probably more years than, than I would like to admit. Why is racism so central to our society? Racism is was integral to the founding of our society. The, the colonialism of the European countries that, that stole the land from indigenous people and committed genocide against Native Americans was part, is part, an integral part of the structure of our society. The exploitation, the enslavement of Africans... Um, in this country um, and the unpaid labor of 
enslaved Africans um, built this society, built the, the buildings, the farms, the plantations, the factories. Um, and so it, this is not, this is a very deep-rooted problem and very long-standing. And um, we need to realize that, that racism has been foundational to the creation of our country and the maintenance of our country. Um, so uh, privilege is, is a, uh, not necessarily the best word. Um, I think it's absolutely true that all of us who are white have benefited from racism, from the exploitation of people of color. I mean, you can think about who made your clothes, um, who grew the food that you ate today, uh, who made your cell phones and computers, um, who cares for our in, in our medical system and in our homes for the elderly and for children and, and for those with disabilities. Very often that is the underpaid, underrecognized work of people of color, primarily women. So that, those are benefits we get. Um, but privilege, as you're right, really speaks to having more than enough. And it's the privileges of racism have been concentrated in the ruling class, um, the people who have billions of dollars rather than those of us who are struggling and working hard to put uh, a roof over our heads and food in our children's mouths. So um, I, I'd like to talk about how we benefit from racism in, some, in, in many different ways, but how the privileges are really concentrated at the top of the economic pyramid. Well, and, and you made a comment in the opening, and you talked about there's a lot of things going on right now, and what we have going on with with the pandemic. I mean, many people that used to have access to a certain number of things have lost that because they've lost their job. Um, we all know that certain industries have taken a huge hit, entertainment, travel, hospitality, and those are jobs that won't be coming back very quickly, and those are filled a lot of times by people of color. Right. Um, and at the same time, the, 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 the very richest billionaires in our society have increased their net worth by about 25% just in the last four months um, during the pandemic. And so it, we have to realize that um, our communities are being very hard hit, and there's, uh, 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 and there's a reason for that. It's not just the pandemic, but it's the economic structure of our society, um, which has both racial and gendered and, and other implications. Well, you bring up gender, and that's a very important point. And, you know, I go back to 1964, and I think of the Civil Rights Act, and it was supposed to give people of color the right to work as well as gay and transgender. And in so many ways, we have, you know, that was a very small step forward. Uh, right, and, and we know that... Um Black women, Latinx women, indigenous women have, have always been on the, the front lines of the struggles for racial justice. And they've also been the most harshly impacted by racism, the most exploited and marginalized and excluded. So we have to really look at the intersections of these issues. Um, 
And we also have to look at the roles that we play as um, those of us who are white as white men, as white women, as white queer and trans people um, in contributing and collaborating with that racism. And, and now is really the time where we need to examine those roles and take the steps to, to move forward and start working for racial justice in, in strong and powerful ways. Well, you know, I think we we talked before and I mentioned to you that, you know, I never knew that racism, racism was a real problem because in the house that I grew up, it wasn't. My mom was a teacher and she transferred. She wanted to be part of the very first integrated high school in Dallas, Skyline, to teach there. And I just never, because I didn't understand it, I didn't recognize what a problem it was. And when I started trying to dig a little bit deeper into my own head, I stopped myself. And I'm a counselor by nature, so I, you know, think back, Lee, think back to the earliest time that you realized you had a racial identity. And I realized it was when we had gone to see my grandmother in South Carolina. And a, a little black girl came running, because of course I'm waving, hi, I'm here, come play with me. And she comes running up to the back of the house and knocks on the door. And I run to the door and she said, can you come outside? And I said, yes. And my grandmother said, no. And I said, why not? And my grandmother said, because she is the N-word. And I didn't even know what that word was. And my mother simply said, honey, she's just kidding. You just run on outside and play. But that was the first time I realized that I, what I wanted to do or how I wanted to interact was being, I was told no. It was because she was a different color. Right, and and one of the costs of racism to white people is that that we're segregated, that we're cut off from people of color in our lives, um, in in our schools, in our neighborhoods, um, and so all the 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 human relationships, the rich culture and creativity and inspiration of people of color is cut off from us. Um, and, you know, it's not surprising that many of us aren't aware of the levels of racism and how it operates, because pretty much everything, all the messages we've gotten from school, from the media, from friends and family, uh, have normalized whiteness, has made whiteness seem to be central and overwhelming um, part of our society. And um, people of color are mostly marginalized, and when they're represented, it's, it's often in negative ways or as inferior to white people. Uh, we've been uh, given plenty of images of white people being the heroes and saviors of our society, the, the ones who made history, who invented things, who were scientists. Um, so we have this tremendously distorted uh, view of the world, um, and... Um, it's, it, it makes it easy for us to pretend or to claim that racism isn't a big problem. And I think the power of the organizing that Black Lives Matter movement and, and other groups are, are engaged in is it makes it in, inescapable, unavoidable for us to confront the reality of racism. When we see a, a black man on TV or in video um, being choked to death intentionally, um, um, you know, or uh, 
you know, any of the number of visual images we now have of the reality of violence against people of color, um, it becomes un, you know, unavoidable to confront that and to talk about, well, okay, so what, what is our relationship to that? How can we respond? How can we act with integrity in this moment? Well, I think, you know, our perception is so different. I had a client that was in my office sitting across the desk from me, and I see a very, and she is a black young lady, I see a very startled look on her face. And I said, oh, my goodness, what's wrong? And she said, there's a police officer at that door. And I said, and, and she can see the door from my window. And I said, well, it's okay. I'm sure he's here. So, you know, there's a reason he's here. But I could tell she was fearful. So I went out and I opened the door and I introduced myself. And I said, "That's I'm in that office right there. And a client of mine saw you. Is Can I help you? And he said, no, no. And, and he goes about his business. But I will never forget the look on her face when she saw that police officer. So when I came back in, I said, so, okay, you know, I told her what was going on, why he was here. And I, I said, so we're all good, right? Uh-huh. I said, are you okay? And she said, no, I'm not. You don't understand what being a black person and seeing a police officer means. And, Paul, I have an office. It's, it's in a nice part of town. You know, my thinking is, well, she knows she's safe here. But that was not her thinking. Well, it's not just that it was not her thinking. It's not her reality. As a black person, she isn't safe in your community. She doesn't walk down the street or into stores or do anything with the kind of level of safety that you or others in your community have. And that's that's part of the why it's so important um, if for those of us who are white to be listening to people of color, to be acknowledging and giving credibility to their accounts of their experiences. Um, and they have written so much. Um, there's so much poetry and books and videos and movies and music and uh, that describe the everyday lives of people of color. And often we're very ignorant of that. We're very disconnected from that. Um, and so we, we literally live it, move in different worlds um, without an understanding of the harm, the exploitation and violence that's being done every day in our names, benefiting us, but mostly invisible to us. Well, you know, you make a good point. It is ignorance. And we have to educate ourselves. We, you know, I, I talk to some people and they place the burden on the education. They place those on the black people. The black people need to teach us. No, they know. We need to educate ourselves. I think it's important that, that we take responsibility for educating ourselves. Um, there's plenty of um, communication from black people, Latinx people, uh, indigenous folks about their lives and their realities. Um, and we we don't want to burden the individual people of color around us and say, tell me about your lives or do the work for me when we have the access to the resources. So it's really important. I think, though, that it's also important to realize that we, on the one hand, part of the work uh, for us as white people is to learn more, is that education. Um, but that's not all of it, because if we just get more educated and we're still 
do living our lives the same way, we're still not involved in the struggle for racial justice, then it doesn't change anything. It doesn't actually benefit people of color. We just feel more woke, um, but we don't actually engage in the community in addressing issues of injustice. Well, I think, you know, it's important how we educate ourselves. Uh, I'm reading a book that was written by a black woman, and it's why I no longer talk to white people about racism. And it really, so many points in that book touched me, but one in particular comes to mind. And she talks about how when she was four years old, she had was watching television, and all the good people on television were white. So she goes up to her mom, and she's like, Mom, when am I going to turn white? And her mother looks at her, and she says with this, you know, this look on her face, and she said, Honey, you're never going to turn white. And she said, But I'm a good person, and all the good people are white. That really touched me. Yeah, it, that's it's a very painful experience. Um, it's part of the way that um, people of color have to learn to survive in a society that is fundamentally unwelcoming and unsupportive of their very lives. Um, and so there's a lot we can do to change that, but it means acknowledging that reality. It also brings to mind, what is the education that we're giving to our young white people, our children and, and students and, and nieces and nephews and neighbor, neighboring children? Um, it's not just that um, children of color have to learn, in this, learn how to live in this society, but we need to take responsibility as white adults for the ways that we're raising white children to perpetuate racism, to um, be misinformed, to be... Uh, basically collaborators, um, or at least future collaborators, in perpetuating racism. Well, and you make a good point. When you think about what our youth, what they study in school, there's no black history involved. There's none of that. Very little. Um, and if you look at our textbooks, they're woefully, not just inadequate, but they're they're almost malicious in the misinformation that, that's in them. Um um, that um, distorts our, our history and our, our current reality. Um, so it's really important that as adults with the young people around us, that we re-examine the, the messages we're giving, the conversations we're having, the, the textbooks we're using, um, the storybooks in our um, households, the pictures on the walls, the, um, just we... In my book, Uprooting Racism, uh, How White People Can Work for Racial Justice, there are some, lots of guidelines for parents, um, teachers, and youth workers on how to really rethink our lives around racial justice and how to invite our young people into those conversations and really give them the tools they need to live in a, in a multicultural society and to show up for racial justice. Well, you know, one of the points that you make is under some basic tactics, and you say, assume racism is everywhere, every day. Exactly. Um, we know racism is um, deeply embedded in all aspects of our lives, in our institutions, um, in our organizations, in our interrelationships. 
And so it's not a question of whether there's racism. The question is, how is it showing up in this particular situation? And, it, and that's including in situations that are all white, because almost inevitably, if a situation, if a, a meeting or an organization or a neighborhood is all white, there's a history of racism behind that that made it white, that pushed people of color out or took their land or excluded them from living there or being part of that organization or getting the promotions or education and training to be part of those institutions. So, um, yeah, we have to look at um, every, being an ally is, is kind of an everyday practice of looking around and noticing how racism is playing out and then deciding what to do about it and, and talking about it and getting together with others to address it. Well, I, this, another point you make in your book is just stop and notice who is the center of attention and who is the center of power. That says a lot. It's really crucial um, because often um, there are people of color around, but they're not in positions of leadership or power or authority. They're often doing work that's either invisible or poorly paid or often highly dangerous and and exploited. And so we have to be able to identify, okay, so what are the roles here? And um, how are they divided up um, by race? Um, and of course, we would also want to look around about gender and class and, and other um, uh, intersectional issues as well in terms of who, who, do, who decides, who, pay, who benefits, who pays, from the decisions that are getting made in these situations. Well, why are there different rules for different people? Because in a lot of times, they are, there, there really is different rules. And I think if we stop, and, and what I know you're saying is we've got to stop and pay attention. Notice how racism is denied, how it's minimized, and how it's justified. Exactly. And that's part of the practice of showing up as an ally um, because once we can identify racism, um, name it, see it, talk about it, then we can actually work together with others to make a difference and change things. Well, and when we come back from break, we're going to talk a lot more about showing up as an ally. But I think what stops some people is they're like, you know, I, I don't know what to do. And my response to that is you don't have to be a perfect ally to speak up. You know, you can start with little things, seeing what somebody posts on Facebook. And when they see it and it sounds really racist, call them out on it. Don't close your eyes. I mean, for me, it is not okay to pretend everything is okay right now. And I think that that's what we've been doing is, for a lot of us, we don't understand how, we haven't understood that this problem is systemic. It's not going to go away. We really haven't moved very much since 1964 with the Civil Acts, and we have to. We absolutely have to. Now is the time, and we don't have a choice. It's time that we all stand up and face racism. We'll be back after these messages. Welcome to Geraldine Tegelove Live. 
the show that shares with you the secrets of redefining, reinventing, and rebuilding your life. Having pulled herself from the rubble of financial ruin and having gone on to create a highly successful career, Geraldine has become an expert in the art of transformation. She believes that it doesn't matter where you are right now, how overwhelmed you feel, or how impossible the task of turning your life around may seem. You can do it. Stay tuned as metaphysician, international best-selling author, and intuitive Geraldine Tegelov gives you the inner understanding and the outer practical how-to to create your amazing life. Gain a fresh perspective on how to redefine, reinvent, and rebuild your life. Join Geraldine Tegelov live every Tuesday evening at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on the Toginet Radio Network. You're like me. Sometimes you have trouble choosing between being a couch potato or going out. Hey, it's a big decision for us scabberlatchers. A scabberlatcher or a ragabash is another word for a lazy person. Well, a couple from California seems to have solved the problem by inventing a motorized sofa. You may think they're just spinning their wheels, but people have spotted the couple cruising down the street on their drivable Davenport in West Los Angeles and Santa Monica. No word yet on the couple's identity, but a man claiming to be a relative said it's all well within the norm for his fun-loving cousin. I don't know if this Chesterfield on wheels is street legal, but either way, I think the police would have to put up quite a chase before they could couch him. It's marching I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. We're back. Now here is your host, Lee Richardson. We're back with Paul Kibble, and we're discussing the guidelines for being strong white allies. And, Paul, so let's just talk about it. What can white people do? There's a lot that white people can do in in this time. Um, We talked earlier about self-education, and that's always an ongoing process because we've been so miseducated um, by our society. Um, But one of the things that um, Black Lives Matter folks have been saying is that uh, silence is complicity, that one of the things that keeps racism alive in our society is the silence of white people in talking about uh, racism and and what's happening around us. Often, as white people, we're, we're scared to speak up, to mention things, to confront people, to interrupt, to address things. So one of the things we can do is break the silence. Um, We need to be having these conversations with our families, with our neighbors, with our co-workers, uh, with our children, as I mentioned earlier, um, and um, talking about what we see, what we notice. I think that part of that, um, I often talk about calling white people in, (laughs) because it's not about blaming and shaming white people. Um, it's about engaging them about what's going on in our society and talking about what we can do and how we can be involved. Now, you, you probably know a lot of, I'm sure each of your listeners knows a lot of white people. Um, and I think that 
when I talk about breaking the silence, we need to be challenging white people when they're saying things that are racist or acting in racist ways in our uh, organizations. But we mostly we need to be calling white people in. We need to be inviting them in to this struggle. Um, we are all pay tremendous costs for the racism that's happening in our society, as as we referred to earlier. We all have a, a tremendous mutual interest in changing things and building the kind of society of health and safety and inclusion and, and welfare that um, help you know makes everybody thrive and be included. So we need to invite people into this discussion. We need to listen to other white people and their concerns and gently challenge them and invite them into working with us to make a difference. So that's well, one I, piece of the Well, I know you made a point in your guidelines, and that, that point was be strategic. Decide what's important to challenge and what's not. Right. Um, so the next piece is that what we're being asked to do over and over again are, are two specific things by people of color. One is to show up in solidarity, to look to the leadership of people of color who are organizing um, on all kinds of issues and campaigns and get involved um, and leverage our resources as white people. So as white people, we have access to um, time and energy and connections with other white people and money to some extent and other resources. Um, we can amplify the voices of people of color. Um, there's lots and lots of ways that we can support the organizing that's going on in our communities already. We don't have to create something new. We're not heroes and saviors. We're not rushing in to take over or to rescue people, but we're, we're coming in as um, listening, as um, understanding that we have to shift our role as white people um, and that there's a lot we can contribute to. But the other piece of the work is to educate and mobilize other white people. We need many, 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 many more white people doing the work for racial justice if we're seriously going to um, create the kind of society we want to live in. And that means um, looking around at our organizations um, and our institutions and seeing what kind of role we play in those, those places. Um, and um, what kind of, how can we get together with other people, both white people and people of color, and strategically begin to change things, to work for change um, in our workplace, in our schools, in um, uh, you know, in our neighborhoods, in our churches. Um, in, I mean, in I'm our very religious organizations, absolutely. In our sports uh, teams, um, in our gyms, um, wherever we are, there's work to do. And um, I think that for me, it's always been important to ask myself two questions. The first question is, what do I stand for? Do I stand for justice? Do I stand for integrity? Um, uh, and honesty and things like that. But the, the second question that's so important to ask ourselves in, in these kinds of times is who do I stand with? Do I stand with those who are under attack, who are being marginalized, who are being excluded and exploited? Um, and so 
we need to ask ourselves continually, am I standing with um, black and Latinx and indigenous folks, um, people who are on the front lines of working to build a different society? I like that. I like the way you put that. Who do I stand with? And, you know, I'm very proud to say that the church that I go to, uh, United Methodist at Lover's Lane, they did a July 12th, they did uh, the Zoom meeting to talk about how black health matters. And they called it Down by the Riverside. And in the black history, Down by the Riverside is a song that says a lot. Right. Um, and I think that one one of the things that it's important to, to recognize is, is this is not a short-term operation. Um, the roots of racism are very deep in our society, and um, this, this is a moment when there's a lot for us to do. But after the election, after the protests in the streets um, uh, uh, diminish, there is still going to be a lot of work to do. So we need to be um, addressing things, having these conversations now, but we need to realize that we need to build uh, real uh, organizations and institutions of change, like in your church, that, that are committed to, to funding and supporting and doing the long-term work necessary to keep us moving forward, because it's so easy for us to be distracted or to want to go back to normal, um, you know, after the pandemic or after the election or after the protests and feel like that's, and that's very much what happened in the civil rights movement. So many white people said, well, we passed the civil rights bill. We've passed the Voting Rights Act. Therefore, racism is over and done with, and we can all go home. And we know now um, just how devastating that um, those decisions were. So we, we have to make that commitment to stay involved, not just to be involved. I think you make a good point. Instead of thinking about a couple of months ahead when we're past this, we need to be looking years ahead because 1964 was a long time ago. And if we do what we did then, we may find ourselves stuck. And I think that it's time and that we have to make change. Going back to what you said, it is not okay to be quiet. We've got to, st everybody's got to step up and take a stand. So how do we talk to other white people about that and tell them that? I think in talking to other white people, it's important that we, um, talk, talk respectfully, that we have, seriously listen to the white people around us and what their concerns are, that we share honestly our feelings and outrage and anger and, and about what's going on in our society and invite a conversation about that, um, that we, you know, are informed enough that we can talk about the impact of racism, not just on people of color, but what it's doing to our entire society. Um, that we, you know, and it, that it's not a, just a one-time conversation. Um, it's an ongoing conversation. It's the way racism becomes just part, one of the things that we talk about normally and casually because that it's part of our lives. And until 
we get to some point at which it isn't, we need to, to normalize and, um, the conversations. But we also need to invite people to join us in getting involved in doing things. You know, exactly. if, you're, if you're going to an educational event, invite some other white friends or family members to go with you. If you're going to a city council meeting to protest around the uh, educational policies or the housing policies, invite other white people to go with you. Um, we need to get involved ourselves, but we also need to invite other part of the, the conversation is really the mutual action, the, the taking action together. Well, with the upcoming elections, uh, I think we see there's going to be opportunity. If nothing else, we can call our district attorney office and talk about what's going on in the city. There's I'm in Dallas, and there is always something to talk about. Have you heard of an organization showing up for racialjustice.org? Yes. um, I'm one of the group of people who started Surge, as we call it, a little over 10 years ago now. Um, it's a national organization that we created to really focus on educating and mobilizing white people. Um, and there are now over 125 chapters around the country um, in cities, small towns, rural areas, uh, working with local people of color-led partner organizations to address issues of racial justice in their community. Um, and then there's also national campaigns for those who don't have a chapter in their area to get involved with partly around the elections, partly around um, the criminal legal system and police accountability. Um, So there's lots of ways to get involved for white people. And there's tremendous resources on the website, uh, which is showing up for racialjustice.org. I did not know that you had been involved with that. I just had run across it in doing some research, and I was so, so surprised at the diversity and the different uh, the, the different levels of concern. Um, so many different programs, so much something will resonate with with everyone, and that's a way to help. That's a way to to jump in. Right. It's it's uh, powerful. It's become a powerful organization with lots of ways for people to engage and get involved and and to learn and to connect with others who are also trying to make a difference. Um, Another uh, useful resource, um, I think, is my book, Uprooting Racism, which is really a toolkit for white people to learn more about racism, to understand the history, but also to be able to look at the organizations and institutions around us and to uh, ta- learn how to talk with other white people, to, to think about our own parenting or teaching, um, and to really uh, live a life as an ally of, of a person of integrity who is committed to justice and actually practicing justice in our daily lives. Uh, and that's, that's a tall drink of water to step up to. But it's something that we all have to do. You know, you've mentioned the children a couple of times, and I think that's where the change is going to start. How do we talk with our children about racism? What do we say? Well, it starts with us (laughs) and then moves to our children. Our our children are already receiving lots of um, negative messages about people of color. In, in their books, cartoons, TV, advertisements. 
Um, so we have to be able to talk with them about, um, well, one thing is, you know, when we're reading stories with them or watching cartoons with them, we have to be able to say, well, why, why are all the, the evil people darker skinned? Um, you know, why are there no or why are there no people of color in this in this children's book? Um, and we have to think about So how do we introduce books and, and videos and, and that are multicultural, multiracial? Um, we have to be able to talk about what's going on right now in terms of Black Lives Matter um, and the murder of black people by police. Uh, young people are picking this up um, by by themselves through their. Um, conversations with other people through listening to adult conversations to seeing things here overhearing things on the news and we need to talk honestly about what's going on and and um, how horrible the violence is and why it's so important that we work together to change things uh, young people are are even at the early age of three four five already building relationships based on racial consciousness um, and we need to be not waiting till, quote, they're ready, unquote, which is usually years and years later. But we have to acknowledge that even at a very young age, there's ways to talk about how people can live together um, and how sometimes that breaks down. And we need to change that when people are being excluded or bullied or discriminated against. We need to stand up for them. And young people have a tremendous sense of fairness and justice, um, and and we can involve them with you know our activities. Well, I think that you know we talk about listening, talking to each other, and listening, but I think a lot of times we don't listen to the black people that are in our lives. Uh, definitely, um, we we often we've been trained to kind of predispose to dismiss what black people or indigenous people and others um, say about their lives. Um, we, we have our own judgments. We think we know more. We've been taught that, you know, white people know more than people of color anyway. So, um, so it's, it's not easy um, for us to actually just sit with and listen to and absorb and respond to honestly to the stories, to the information that people of color provide, and if they name, and if they're naming racism, we may have all kinds of discomfort around that, and uh, in what's been called uh, white fragility by Robin D'Angelo in in her book, we have ways to cut that in that conversation, to dismiss it, to override it, to get so upset the attention becomes focused on us or to withdraw or to counterattack and say, you know, the person of color is too angry or too upset or it's not really racism. So um, there's, there's some work we need to do around just being able to listen and honestly absorb the information and, and experiences that people of color are often offering us without any recognition and, and at great expense. Well, and it's part of our history, too. You know, I've heard people talk about black history, Texas history, the United States history. It's all of our history. The black history impacts us all. We're all in this world together. Right. And, um, you know, but 
all, all of our history is black history, but we only have a month of black, of black history month. And then we move on. And that, that really uh, is supposed to cover it. Um, but I think that the bigger point is that we all have a deep mutual interest in addressing racism because racism is one of the foundations of the exploitation of all of us in this society um, and the environmental degradation of our uh, land and and uh, environments, our water, our air, and things like that. <clears throat> and so um, it's not... It's in. It's not just in our interests that our very lives and, and and humanity are at stake in addressing racism, in transforming our society. That we can't pretend that this is a minor issue or it's off to the side from the more important ones. Um, uh, racism is the, at the very core of what's our society is built on and what we need to transform. So that that's to me what makes it so difficult. It is at the very core. So do we blow that core up and start all over again? What do we do? I don't have any answers for that. Um, but we we do. What we do is we start from where we are, with the relationships and and context that we're in, and we work from there. And we find other people to work with. Um, and begin to strategically think about how to change things. Um, we don't know how things are going to develop or how they're going to end up. It's, it's a very chaotic period in, in our society and in the world. But we are embedded in relationships, in neighborhoods, in organizations, in workplaces, in schools. Start where you are reach out to other people to identify how racism is operating, um, look to the leadership of people of color, and and following that, you know, get involved. Begin to do things that work towards the kind of change we want to see. I saw a survey that Fortune put out, and it said that 62% of the CEOs that were surveyed had said they were making changes in their business policies and programs based upon what has happened with the Black Lives Matter. And to me, that's there's power in that. There, there's, there's some power in it, um, but they're, they're, they are clearly responding to the... Um, the, the protests, the outrage, the frustration uh, of people of color. And so, yeah, very, most organizations are feeling a, a need to respond to that, to make statements. But in t unless we are working to hold them accountable to those statements and that those policy changes and making sure that they're actually on target and producing the kind of change we want to see, then they're not going to continue do, doing that, and they may not do anything at all. Um, so it's uh, we need to not be lulled into thinking that <clears throat> things are already changing, and therefore we don't need to be involved. No, you're right about that. If anything, I think we need to join diversity groups and inclusion groups. You know what? Sometimes you just have to show up. It, it, showing up is so important, um, and it can mean to a school board meetings, it can mean to city council meetings, it can be to demonstrations or protests, but it can also be showing up in our workplaces um, 
and pushing for change there. It can be addressing any kind of segregation or gentrification that's going on in our neighborhoods and cities, um, showing up where we are already connected. And sometimes it's harder to do. I mean, I, I have colleagues that they're willing to put a little money where their mouth is. They're willing to, you know, chip a little in. And, and I think that's that's important. I am not minimizing that. But learn about the organizations that support mental health for the black people or the people of color. You know, think about where you put your money. Um because where you put your money can be just as important as to how much you put. Uh, that's very true. And and we need to think of this not as charity, but as social change. What, what are the organizations that are working to change the institutions that we live in, not just are not only providing services, um, which is doesn't change things in the long term. We have a, a tremendous need in our society for services, and there's lots of mutual aid networks that are very important to support. But we really need to be addressing the roots of the issues and supporting, whether it's with our money or time or energy, the organizations that are really pushing the, the leading edge of, of racial justice and other forms of, of justice in our communities. Well, I know you have a lot of good information on your website. On your website, do you have uh, a listing of the black mental health organizations or, or places that do provide services for the black population? Uh, no, I don't. There, there are many resources on my website about how, about how to be involved as an ally, um, and it's, it's just uh, paulkibble.com is the website. But um, I, what I think is important is to look around where you are um, and look at the, and find the organizations that are doing social change work, social justice work, um, and find out how effective they are and how you can support them. Um, look for the leadership. Do they have leadership, people of color in leadership? Are they addressing not only the basic needs of people of color, but are they working to change the institutions, not just providing food for those who are hungry, but looking at living wage jobs so people can afford food, not just looking at uh, temporary shelter for people who are homeless, but are addressing the, the issues that prevent people from having adequate and affordable housing. Um, so we need to be constantly looking at the roots of what we're up against. Well, I think, you know, that's a great statement to kind of close down on is that we look, we need to look at the roots. Where is it coming from? Because it, it, if we go to the roots, the root cause of the problem will be a lot more effective in stopping that. I so appreciate everything that you've shared. And, you know, if you just had one thing to say to the listeners one takeaway that you would want them to have, what would that be? Um, what I would say to other white people is that now is the time to step up, that we have a tremendous uh, leadership from people of color right now pushing for change. There's tremendous openings, and we need to step up and increase our action, our, our ability to show up, and work together with others to really address the roots of, raci of racism.
That is great. And I am sure if anybody was confused and didn't know how to do that, you've got an email address on your website, paulkibble.com, and they could reach out to you. Thank you, Paul, so much for your time today. Lee Richardson and the Brain Performance Center, we want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, TogiNet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify,